Welcome to another edition of our Music and the Brain podcast. I'm Steve Mencher. I'm joined today by DeForia Lane. She's at the Seidman Cancer Center, located at University Hospital's Case Medical Center. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Lane. My pleasure, Steve. Now, sometimes we talk directly about the, the music in the brain and music therapy, but sometimes I like to look back a little bit. And I, I want you to tell me a little bit about your musical background and when you first got excited about and interested in music. I was growing up in a home whose walls were filled with music. My mother played classical piano, so I grew up with strains of Chopin and Humoresque and Claire de Lune wafting every day. And my feet could not keep still. It was one of those, those times when the music seemed to infuse my whole body. My father's baritone voice made my toes tingle. So I was aware of the joy that music could bring. But even at age four, I can distinctly remember in our uh, modest little church watching how music transformed people. Literally, there was a what I call, excuse me, a stone-faced usher who uh, literally looked as though his face was chiseled from marble. But on Sunday mornings, if Miss Estelle sang her song, his face would literally melt. And I'd sit there and watch him turn from this hard, chiseled busk of a, of a man to a genteel, soft, and the tears would flow. Similarly, the uh, mothers of the church, those were the elderly women, they would walk down the aisle on the arm of, a, of an usher, leaning very heavily because of arthritis, and sit down in the pew almost in a way that it hurt to watch. But when the gospel choir started to sing, and if there were spirituals around, uh, they became energized. And I could see it in their limbs, in their, in their faces. Their arms would extend and their legs would begin to move. And it was just one of those, those things where I wondered, how is it that music can do this? So my mother noticed my face and, and the energy that it created when I was around music. So I started piano at five, voice at 16, and entered the university um, of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music at 18 under a, a vocal scholarship. And life has been one beautiful musical road ever since. That was followed by, the, by being accepted into Curtis Institute of Music, where I was able to sing on stage, literally have some key roles in operas and, and understand the camaraderie and that, that feeling of me, the audience, and the music as one. That's fabulous. Now, I've talked to several people in the series who made the, the leap from being people who thought they were going to have careers in music, for whom music was the central thing in their lives, to figuring out in some ways that what they were really meant to do was to take that music and help people in a different way than simply 
uh, entertaining, which is, there's nothing wrong with entertaining. We have a lot of that going on here at the Library of Congress. But there's something else when you make the leap from being a performer, being a musician, to being a music therapist. And I, and I want to have you tell us a little bit about that journey for you. The reality of being an opera singer is about as similar to a young boy wanting to be in the NBA. I mean, we all think that that is something that's possible. But I also am a traditionalist. I wanted to be a wife and a mother. And flitting around the country and singing is not compatible uh, with that at times. So what happened was I went back to school for a graduate degree and ended up leafing through a catalog, finding this course called Introduction to Music Therapy. And it was the perfect merger between my love for music and my desire to serve and nurture people. And once I started that, that road, uh, it took me into places that I could still use the gift of music, but in a very different way. It wasn't centered on the applause and the, um, the bows and, and the encores, but it was nonetheless satisfying and fulfilling and purposeful to me either. I just simply learned not just the art of music, but then I added to it the science of music. And when those two things come together, uh, it can be magic. There's a, there are some special challenges in, in using music as you do as a specialty in the treatment of cancer patients. And it seems like there are so many different parts of that that I'd like to talk to you about. So let's start with the idea of, of pain management, for example. If it was so simple, if, if music could help treat pain, wouldn't, wouldn't all the doctors be doing that all the time and shouldn't they? <laughs> Excellent. We look at pain as one of the main fears of the majority of our, our patients, whether they have cancer or not. But cancer patients in particular, the needles for infusion of chemotherapy, the bone marrow aspirations, which can be exceedingly uncomfortable, the pain of emesis and nausea, and all of those things that accompany even anticipatory nausea. So pain is a reality that everybody in the oncology world faces. So what can music do with that? One of the things we know is that music has a definitive effect on blood pressure, heart rate, respiration rate. It can lower the muscular tension and the anxiety that we feel. Now, pain, you can imagine, if you're tense and tight, it's very difficult to insert a needle in an arm that uh, is not relaxed. The vasal constriction, your, your veins uh, end up tightening and squeezing, and they're so small that it makes it very difficult. So one of the ways we try to use music is to help a patient relax, to learn to breathe, to also quiet the the mind. And if you are focused on the music and the beauty it brings, especially if it's your preferred music, there are some natural body uh, opiates that are released. Now, 
whether that's why we look at uh, pain being decreased, but we do see that patients, when refocused on music of their choosing, and if it's live, you can, uh, as a music therapist, I can alter its pace, I can alter the dynamics with which I sing or play, Um, I can also uh, create a sense of waiting or anticipation simply by the pauses in between. So all of those things can be used in a very therapeutic way to help reduce pain. And we've seen it not only in the operating room where anesthesiologists have told me they honestly use less medication. Um, We've seen a study at uh, Yale New Haven did one that, that looked at patients with a patient-controlled analgesic pump that they could press and release morphine during conscious anesthesia surgery. So they were having something done where they could stay awake. And they compared that, how much anesthesia was used, to a patient who had their preferred music and that controlled analgesic pump. And those with the music and their pump used 43% less than those without it. Wow, that's amazing. Now, getting back to the cancer, an- another problem or another issue that, that some cancer patients have is the idea of depression, the idea that they don't have a way to, to marshal their resources, to be present, and to try to feel that they're going to overcome the disease. H- how does music work there? I ask them the question, in previous experiences of challenge in your life, what has helped? I want to get to know them personally. And then once they tell me if it's faith, if it's their family, if it's being saying funny things, whatever that could be, I ask them to express those verbally to me. Uh, I would write them all down and I say, would you be willing to create a song that expresses what you're feeling? Could we take this and capture it with a certain genre of music? So I've written many songs with patients, not just for them, but with them. Similarly, if a person is not very good with words, we can take improvisation instrumentally, give them instruments of different sort, and work with them to express what they're thinking by using those instruments. So the, the whole idea of depression we address from a point of self-worth, self-value, self-esteem, of expressing oneself and making something both artistic and, and beautiful from that. Well, now as we're talking about cancer and cancer treatments, I know that I've read that you've had your own issues with cancer and that music uh, was helpful to you personally. Now, do you bring that story with you when you work with patients? When I see people struggling with the same things I struggled with, I couldn't turn off my brain at night and go to sleep. I also had a hard time sharing with other people, fearing that I would dump on them, make them feel bad. When others would come and talk to me, I felt their anguish, and I didn't know how to comfort them. So when I see those things in other people, yes, I say, There were times when um, I was in your shoes, and they invariably ask, what helped? How did you make it through? And I never would have thought that this, I've been through cancer twice now, Uh, I never would have thought 
it laid the foundation for me to do what I'm doing now. It, it was almost, I feel that it was a preparation, a priming, a um, sensitizing of who I am so that I could use what I have to share with others and encourage them. In this day and age when uh, the insurance companies and the government and everyone else is so focused on preventative medicine and trying to bring down the costs of medicine. Are you finding ways that music is helpful there and that music therapy can really be in the forefront of a new approach to maintaining health and, and preventing illness and disease? Research, research, research. People value what they can measure, and physicians in particular and, and healthcare administrators want to see what they can do to drive down cost, but also to give people the high-tech and the high-touch experience that they need in a hospital. So we are, as music therapists, able to bill under CPT codes. However, What's a CPT code? Oh, don't ask me. Um, <laughs> you can just tell me in general. Well, there, when doctors bill for their services, they have to write which particular diagnosis and what codes certify them to be able to do that, sure. to, to bill. And there are different codes for different diseases and different treatments. So music therapists can do that, but it is on a case-by-case -case basis. It's not carte blanche. And therefore, it's a difficult thing to know that we have something that can be helpful, but we don't want to add it on to the patient's bill either. So in, in answer to your question, we are doing more research to show that measurable differences can happen when a patient has music therapy. In some cases, they are discharged sooner. In others, they use less medication. In others, they're more cooperative and more compliant, and every doctor wants that from a patient. Um, when a person's spirits are higher, they're obviously heal faster, they do better. So there are ways that we are and can uh, make this a, a billable um, event. It's just that, uh, it's still in progress. Well, and that's a terrible conundrum, of course, for the whole healthcare industry. We are very good in this country, and I don't mean to editorialize, but we're very good in this country at treating illness and treating disease. And here, if you are going to be able to prove that you have something that can make illness happen and be over with faster, or not happen at all, or make people healthier, that's not something that the healthcare system necessarily is going to be able to find a way, as you say, to reimburse you for. And here you have professionals who are excellent at what they do and doing it at the highest levels and are helping keep the costs down for everyone. And as you say, you have to find a way to be compensated for that. Mm. I think the answer is collaboration. Um, some of the research that, that I've done, uh, I've been helped through it with physicians who know about what things matter in the, that world. So one of the research studies that I did had to do with something called salivary immunoglobulin A. In, in our saliva is a, an antibody. It's a natural antibody. And what I did with a randomized sample of patients experimental received music therapy, the control group did not, 
and I took a pre and post sample of their saliva to see if one music therapy session could make any difference in their immune function as measured by salivary IgA. And indeed, it does. The, it was significantly different. And so physicians look at that and they say, now if this can help my patient, let's do it. That's great. Now, we recently talked with uh, Todd Macover of the MIT Media Lab, and his students were among those who invented the guitar hero. And it made me think that now that I have a chance to talk with you, I understand that you are someone who work at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame sometimes doing a toddler rock with the very youngest uh, rock and rollers. Uh, how old are these folks, and, and what are you doing there, and, and how does it help the kids? Mm. Eleven years ago, I received a call from uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's uh, community director, uh, Ruthie Brown, and she said, DeForia, we'd like to start a program to address the needs of at-risk preschoolers, three to five years of age, and you can address it however you want. We want them exposed to the Rock Hall. We want them to feel this is theirs. So create it, and we'll build it. So I contacted many of the uh, preschools in town, many of the Head Starts, and here's what the focus ended up being. Literacy is one of the greatest predictors of academic success. So we focused as music therapists on literacy, letter recognition, alliteration, and rhyme, those three principles. And what we did was to take all of our music creativity and we poured it into using music to teach those concepts. We pre and post tested the children with both standardized literacy tests and our, the ones that we created ourselves. And we have found increasingly better results because of they're having been a part of Toddler Rock. This year marks our 11th year, and we have had well over 3,000 children go through the program. Wow. I have one last question for you, and, and since we've been talking for two years with some of the foremost experts about music and the brain, is the new attention to the idea that music makes changes in the brain, makes the brain act differently, sets off chemicals or activity in the brain, is that helping bring more music therapists into the field? Is that helping bring attention to the field, respect to your field? Tell me a little bit about that before we go. All of the above. When people become aware, when their eyes are opened, their hearts touched, when the research is there to support it, and when they experience it for themselves, there is no doubt that they become consumers. They want to know more. I have been speaking lately at uh, physician conferences, nursing conferences, social work conferences, and once they find out, they say, where have you been? Where are music therapists that we can find? Now, there are about 7,000 of us in the country, but the more we have programs like these, the more people hear it, I think the, the greater the respect, the visibility, the accountability, the interest will be. Thanks. That's really a great way for us to end up. I've been talking with DeForia Lane. She's resident director of music therapy. She's at the Seidman Cancer Center, which is located at University Hospital's Case Medical Center. And this has been another of our Music and the Brain podcasts. I'm Steve Mencher. Thanks for listening.
Thank, Thank you so you. much. That's so much fun. This is what a great 